So you have to bear with me this morning. Uh, I, on Wednesday, I came down with a cold. Thursday, I lost my voice. And uh, we've been praying for a couple days that it would be back. So it's mediocre. I can't quite hit the high notes. Uh, so excuse my voice that's normally nas- nasally, and now I sound like I'm going through puberty again. Um, you can laugh at that. That's okay. We can say that in church. Um, I always feel like I need to give an official break and then get into the recording for online. So we've been covering this series called Free. And like Pastor Adam talked about a minute ago, we, we've been talking about what it looks like in light of the resurrection and what Jesus, through his, his death and resurrection, accomplished for us on our behalf. And we looked at free from performance and uh, free from our past. So today what we're going to look at is being free from our guilt. And this, this will be as close to a fire and brimstone sermon as we get at this church. And um, we're going to be talking about the prodigal son, which I'm going to tell you right now, for those of you who've grown up in the church, the devil's going to tell you right now you don't need to listen because you've heard this before. It's a lie. Don't listen to it. It's another, it's another way to hear the gospel, and it's, and it's good for those of you who are seekers, and it's good for those of you who heard this story a thousand times. Um, so when I was little... Well, I'll say this first. Talking about being free from guilt. And I know a lot of people, if you've grown up in a church culture, you've, you've got a stereotype of what church looks like. Like, oh, great, we're going to hear about sin. We're going to hear about our guilt before God. And it's true. And, and I would say that the, the truth of the matter is, we are all rebels towards God. We have all walked away from the Lord. We all do it regularly in our daily lives. And and so in a way, we, we do have to reconcile this guilt that we have from throwing off God's authority. And so I want to start by telling you a funny story. Um, when I was in about fourth grade, I remember, I don't know if my dad was home. I know my mom was home. I can still picture her standing on the front porch when it happened. I was, I was tired of her telling me what I needed to do. I'm in fourth grade, right? Like, I, I know everything at this point. And it was somewhere in that range. <clears throat> So I said, you know what, Mom? I'm done. I'm running away. So now I'm, I'm kind of a romantic. Like, I, you know, I read books and everything. And back then when cartoons were uh, less stereotyping, a little bit than they are now, uh, there was always this image of the hobo on the train who had a stick with the handkerchief hanging off the bottom of it. And, and this is what I thought in my mind what it looked like to be on the road and running away. So I go to my room. I find a handkerchief, which I have one today, because I thought if I get into a coughing fit, I might need it. So this is about as big as a handkerchief is. And I thought, I'm going to pack everything in here that I need to run away with. So I realized quickly that that wasn't going to work. So I got like a blanket or something. I pack everything. I, I, wrap, I don't even know what I brought. I wrap everything up in this, and I'm like, all right, Mom, I'm running away. And I, I can only imagine as a parent what she was thinking, watching me do this, this ridiculousness of this, as I ride away my bike, like, I'm going to show you, Mom. Here I go with my stick and my knapsack, you know. And I got like four blocks away, and I was like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, this is a terrible idea. And I turned around and, you know, reluctantly, like, back door, you know, dog with a tail between my legs came in and had to apologize. But the truth is, we all do this. We're all guilty of trying to run away from the Lord, to run away from God's authority. And, and so we're going to look at this story of the prodigal son today. And I want to give credit where credit's due. I just finished reading Tim Keller's The Prodigal God, which... I'm like ripping off big sections of that today, so I just want to credit him with that right now and adding some of my own thoughts on it. But if you haven't read it, I encourage you to. 
So I want to pray right now that, like I said, that for those of us who have heard this story so many times, we won't miss it, okay? And, and that my voice would sustain. So let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. God, we settle our hearts and ask that you would show us where maybe we are still rebelling and running from your authority or areas where maybe we think we've got it all together and we're being self-righteous. God, would you speak through me? Would you use the the limited voice I have to be your own voice and and to speak from Scripture and uh, from the Gospel? Be with us now. Help, help protect us from the enemy that we wouldn't ignore this, that we wouldn't miss something. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we live, we live in a world that tells us primarily two things. The, for, the first of which, on one side of things, is you need to be your own person. You need to follow your heart. You need to listen to your dreams. Don't let anybody stand in your way. You know, go, and it's this, kind of this path of self-discovery. And I'm going to go out, and I'm going to be on my own, and I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I don't need anybody's authority. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to live the way I've been wired, so I can do what I want to do. So we'll kind of put that as the, the path of self-discovery, right? And the world is all about this. But kind of ironically, and a bit of a paradox of that, the world is also very much like, hey, if everyone were just like me, everything would be better. Do you see, the, 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 those don't go together, right? If everybody would just live like me, if everybody would vote like me, if everybody would think like me, if everybody would drive like me, if everybody would work just as hard as me, everything would be better. And it's sort of this kind of self-righteousness that we have. And so those two things are kind of a dichotomy, though. They don't really work together because you can't, everybody can't go and be who they want to be and then at the same time expect everybody else to be just like them, which honestly, look at our culture like, this is why we are where we are, right? It's because of those two things conflicting together. And it's really not much different when it comes to faith in the church and faith in general. You know, where there's a lot of people in the church, I mean, honestly, it's all of us. We're all like this. We're like, you know what? I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to take this path of self-discovery. I'm going to read books. I'm, I'm just going to read scripture all by myself. I'm going to pray all by myself. I'm going to go and do my own thing. And at the bottom of it, really, we don't really want anybody else's authority over us. We don't want God's authority. We don't want anybody else's have an authority over us. And really what it comes down to is we want the blessing of having Christ, but without the submission. Okay, we want, we want the good gifts that God offers to us, but we don't really want his authority in our lives. And on the other side of things, and this is honestly kind of an image problem that the church has, right, is that there's a lot of these hardworking, rule-keeping, legalist, Moralist, you know, moralism-type people, judgmental, self-righteous people are saying, well, I'm not a rebel anymore like you. I've got my life together now. And I'm going to earn it now. I'm going to work really hard. And if everybody would be just like me, the church would be a better place. You know, I mean, seriously, we, we know this, right? I mean, culture knows this about us as the church. You know, we've heard that quote before, I like Christ, I just don't like his followers. Right? And, that, and that's, it's so much because of that, that legalism, that self-righteousness that is in the church. Now, for me, I grew up going to a conservative little church. My, you know, my, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, and deacons and elders and all this stuff. So I grew up very conservative. And then when I was in my teens, I was like, you know what? This is ridiculous. 
You know, I don't like the hypocrisy that I see because I was surrounded by a lot of moralists, a lot of judgmental people. I said, you know what, I'm going to go do my own thing. And I completely rebelled. And I was like, I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to be with who I want. I'm going to smoke what I want, drink what I want, listen to what I want. I'm, I'm doing whatever I want. I totally rebelled. And then eventually some people started speaking in my life saying, you're missing the gospel. You're missing who Jesus really is. So then I came back. And like the pendulum swing normally does, I came back into the middle and quickly moved into legalism again. I was like, okay, I'm going to wear the Christian t-shirts, right? I'm going to tell everybody else that they should be Christians. I'm going to tell everybody else that they should vote, the music they should listen to. I threw out my secular tapes, which you guys might not know what tapes are. <laughs> Digital music. You know, like, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the perfect Christian now. And, and, and eventually, Jesus had to really get a hold of my heart and say, no, no, no. It's not self-righteousness, it's not self-discovery, it's the gospel. Which Jesus is always that kind of that, that third answer, that third option, saying, no, 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 it's not left, it's not right, it's here. And so, the problem is, we're all like this. We're all guilty of, of abusing the Father in that way, of abusing God in that way, through self-discovery or self-righteousness. And if you're here and you're on the fence about faith, you're here for a reason. I mean, you're, you're moving closer to God by being here. You're seeking him, and your heart's probably in the same place as all of ours. But we typically fall into to those camps. So I want to go through this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can take it out. You can look at it with me. Um, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. But in Luke 15, Jesus is surrounded by the self-righteous, judgmental Pharisees. These guys are holding the law, saying, this is what Israel needs to look like. This is what good God followers look like. And they start muttering about Jesus, basically saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're basically questioning him in Luke 15, saying, why, Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people? Why are you hanging out with these sinners? And then Jesus tells three parables. What's really interesting, he tells a parable about a lost sheep. He says, if you, have a, if you have a sheep that gets lost, you go and you find it. And they celebrate finding it. And he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. And she searches all over and she finds it and she celebrates that she finds it. So he's letting the, the, these self-righteous Pharisees know, look, I'm here to save the lost. And then he goes into this long story about the parable of the prodigal son, which hopefully your translation has been modified at this point to say the parable of the lost son. It's a much better rendering of what that means. Keller talks about in his book, he says, he says that prodigal, okay, actually means, uh, where is it, recklessly extravagant. I always thought the prodigal meant wayward. I always thought it meant having gone away from God. It means recklessly extravagant, which you know the story of the son, you know how he was recklessly extravagant, but the point is, so is the father. So... We have the story where Jesus is telling the, the Pharisees why he comes and he hangs out with sinners. And he says, there's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So this young son is saying to his father, look, you're basically dead to me. I don't want you anymore. I don't need you anymore. Give me my share of the estate. And he divides it between two sons. Now, in those days, what that means is that the elder son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets one-third. He says, Dad, you're basically dead to me. Divide up the estate. Give me my share. I'm leaving. So he divides it up between his two sons, and the younger son takes it, and he leaves. And he goes to this faraway land, right? And he goes and he squanders all of the wealth. This is where he's prodigal. He's extravagantly 
uh, he's recklessly extravagant. So he goes and he spends all this money, you know, food, drink, prostitutes, the whole nine. And, and he ends up working with pigs, which, if you know anything about Judaism, this is, this is an ironic place for him to end up. In like the lowest of low, the worst of the worst, working in this pig slop. And he basically says, man, if only I could eat as well as they were. This is how bad his life has become after being the prodigal. So he, he devises a plan. After having spent everything, having lost everything, he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father. And he says, look at verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. He's basically saying, look, I'm worthless. I was wrong. I sinned. Take me back. Just make me like one of the slaves that work here. That's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. And he goes back to the father. And what does the father do? Right, stand on the porch, tapping his foot, saying, it's about time you came back. It's about time you came to your senses. You're, you guilty son. No. He runs off the porch. He runs to the son. So, we're talking about being free from guilt, right? So this first son is completely guilty. Why? Because he threw off the authority of the father. He said, I don't need this anymore. I don't want you in charge of my life. Just give me the blessing without the relationship. Give me everything that's due to me. I don't actually want you. And when he says, give me the estate, he's actually saying, it's like you're dead to me. Anyway. So he's under the guilt. He's under this guilt because he doesn't want the father's control. And he's trying to control his own destiny. And I would suggest that, that folks, this is innate in all of us. In all of our hearts. That we don't really want God's control. We don't want God's authority over our lives. We don't want to submit to anyone. We don't want to submit to God. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Right? All the way back to Adam and Eve. This has been through every human being. Through every generation. Through every person. That we have thrown off the authority of God. It's, it's, it's our original sin. It's, it's inside of us. That says we don't want to submit to God. We're all guilty. But what we do want is we want our inheritance now. We want the blessing of God's good creation. right? We want to be provided for. We want all of the, the comfort, the ease, without submission to the Father. This is why we work as hard as we do. This is why we save. I was thinking about it. This is why we tell white lies to make our identity look a little bit better. So we make sure we're provided for and we can provide for ourselves. This is why we aren't generous towards you know, the poor, towards our neighbors, towards our own family, because we're trying to save ourselves. We want all those blessings. This is why we're not good servants. This is why I don't want to serve my kids. Like, because I want all of, all of these things for myself. I don't want to submit to God's rule in my life, and I don't want to submit to anyone else. I'm trying to gain it for myself. But the truth is, what does Jesus say about this when we're only for ourselves? He says, if you want to save your life... You have to what? Lose it. You have to lose it. He says, if you want to follow me, you want to be with me, you're going to take up your cross. You take up this instrument of death. It's a call to die. Coming to Jesus is a call to death that leads to full life through his resurrection. We're set free from guilt through his resurrection to a full life, but the first step is a step of losing ourselves, of giving up ourselves, giving up our own rule over ourselves, and submitting to him. 
But at the end of the day, so many of us naturally, we, we, don't, we don't trust that. We don't trust that staying with Jesus is worth it. We don't trust that he's going to provide for us. We don't want to submit to him. That we can go and through self-discovery, we can make a better life, a better life for ourselves. I'll give you an example. So, what this looks like in my life. And maybe, maybe you've done this too. I regularly find myself saying to God, would you just speak to me? Would you just show me what to do? Would you tell me how to interact with this person? Would you give me the words to say? Would you, would you speak to me, God? Show me, show me who I'm supposed to be in you. Show me what, you know, all these things. But the truth is, oftentimes I've, I've not really done anything to pour into the relationship myself. Now, this walks a fine line of legalism, okay? So please hear me. I'm not saying you need to read your Bible a certain amount of times. You need to pray a certain amount to hear from God. That's not what I'm saying. But it's a relationship with God. So if, if I want to hear from my wife, I have to spend time with her, right? It's the same thing with the Lord. Like, if I want to hear, if I want this blessing of hearing from God, I need to read his promises. I need to be in prayer. I need to hear from him. I need to make time for him to be in relationship. Just a, a simple little example. So, this first son, this younger son, he's guilty of throwing off the father's authority. We all do that. So what's the father's response? Right? Like I said, he doesn't stand on the porch tapping his foot saying, it's about time you came back, you lousy son. No, it says he sees his son at a distance and he runs to him, filled with compassion. He throws his arm around him and he kisses him. And the son starts in on this apology. And he, and he, like he's rehearsed this, right? And he says, okay, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. And he says, quick, to his servants, go get my robe for him and put it on. Get my ring. Get sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate that this son of mine who was lost is now found. So lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. There's a celebration that happens when the rebel returns home, when the rebel returns to the father. And what I find fascinating about this is that initially, the father does not say, no, you can't have your inheritance. He doesn't force his authority on either of his sons, but particularly the rebel. He doesn't say, no, 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 you have to stay here and work this off. No, 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 you can't have it yet. He says, okay. How often does God do that for us, just willingly allow us to to walk? It's our choice to walk away from him. So this father allows his son to go away. And then when the rebel returns, he opens his arm and he he welcomes him. And he puts his arms around him. So we spent a year in the Middle East, my wife and I did. And in Jordan, where we were, it was still kind of a conservative area. So, you know, Middle Eastern area. I could picture this dad, because I've seen these men, still in robes, full beard, they're the patriarch of the family. They don't stoop to an emotional level. They don't, they don't interact with the kids in a playful way. There isn't that, that familial love like that. There's not that compassion there from a, a father to a son. And when we would see it in people, you could tell that Jesus was working them and they were open to the gospel. It was, it was tangible. So, so the image of this father running, off the, running off, out of the house towards his son, robe lifted up, Compassion, you know, filled with compassion for his son is unbelievable in that day as it is now in Middle Eastern cultures. And it reminded me of a story 
I wanted to use this story in a talk for so long. I'm so glad that I finally get an opportunity to. If you meet my dad, you'll understand it a little bit better. So when me and my brother were little, we had this above-ground pool in our backyard. And I was like, you know, I mean, how tall are pools? Four foot? I don't know. And, and one day, it was like 60 feet from our house, and me and my brother in the backyard, and we're swimming around, just kind of horsing around. My dad was inside. Now, my dad's a truck driver. Bearded fella. Picture me, but with like, I don't know, 90 pounds more. Like, he's a big fella. And one day, my dad was home, and he was normally on the road for like five days a week. So when he was home, he was doing all the things that dads had to do. He's mowing the lawn, he's paying the bills, he's making sure things are fixed in the house for my mom while we're gone. He's doing dad stuff. So we're just out swimming in the pool. He was probably like, finally, some quiet in the house. We're swimming around. The next thing I know, our back screen door comes flying open, and out comes my dad in a full sprint towards the pool. Me and my brother still talk about this regularly. Here's my dad, shirt off. It was a, not a great scene. Running full steam, and I'm like, he's going to run smack into the pool. Like, I don't know, I, I can't, my brain cannot figure out what's happening. And he leaps over the pool, into the, into the pool with us, and water everywhere, and, and it was the most, I, I picture this scene, right, like, just unhinged joy approaching us. And I will never forget it. And that's, that's so much what I see in this image is this dad just lovingly running towards his son, saying, I love you. I love you. I'm for, welcome home. Welcome back. And he has compassion on him, and he, and, he, and he feasts with him, and he covers him. You know, he gives him a new identity. He gives him his identity back as a member of the family. He makes him look like himself by putting the robe on him, by putting his ring on him, and he celebrates with him. And we are... We are all like this rebellious son. We are all under this guilt of walking away from the Father saying, I don't want your authority. Yet when we, we turn, right, this son turns first and says, sorry, I messed up. I didn't want your authority. And the Father says, I've loved you the whole time. Welcome home. Let's celebrate. That's the God that we serve, who through Jesus, through his cross, through his resurrection, frees us from guilt. Unbelievable. Tony, when we were, when we were back there praying, reminded me of this, this verse that Paul talks about in Romans 8.1 where he says, there's no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves us. He's for us. For our rebellious hearts, as rebellious as they are, he simply says, turn to me. I'm here. I love you. I stand here with arms wide open ready to give you my identity, ready to robe you in my robe, to give you my ring, to give you my authority after repentance. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what God frees us from in our guilt. So we don't need to carry it around. We don't need to beat ourselves up. We don't need to, to work like we'll look at with the second son. We simply turn and come back to the Father, and he loves us through Jesus. So let's look at the second son, because... Like the other parables so far, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and this first son, there's a resolution, right? There's a celebration that happens when the lost son is found. But we know that there's an elder brother, right? So what happens is, they start having this big feast, and they're celebrating. Meanwhile, the older son is still out in the field. He's out working hard, and he's slaving away. 
And he comes in and he hears this noise and dancing and he says to one of the servants, what's happening here? And the servant says, well, your younger brother's home. Your father was excited, so we killed the fatted calf. We're having a celebration. And this brother is ticked. So irritated. Just remember our self-discovery, self-righteousness. We talked about self-discovery and rebellion. Now we're on to this self-righteous older brother. And And he stays outside. He refuses to go in. So if you know anything about Scripture, you know, this is where Jesus is now turning kind of the laser eye towards the Pharisees. So they weren't the lost son who rebelled. They're the self-righteous son. And now he's turning it to them to say, this is what's been offered to you. And this is how you're responding. So the father goes outside to him. And the brother confronts him. If you look, uh, where is it? Look at verse 29. His father goes out and pleads with him in verse 29. He says, but he answers his father, look, look you, you idiot. All these years I've been slaving away for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. This disrespect. He doesn't even say I want to celebrate with you. He says I want to celebrate with my friends. You wouldn't even give me a goat. But when this son of yours, not my brother, When this son of yours comes home, after celebrating with prostitutes and running around, you kill the fatted calf for him. Do you hear the the incredulousness in his voice? How angry he is. So full of of self-righteousness. And again, what we see here is this guilt that's on him. What's his guilt? His guilt is that he didn't want the father's authority either. As much as the rebel who went away, we have the self-righteous brother who didn't want it either. He just wanted the blessing. He was trying to control the father, saying, I'm going to do all these good things, and you better reward me the way that I think you should. He, he no more wants the father than the younger brother. And, and I would suggest that this is the majority of us. The majority of us, either by default or the way we've been raised up in churches, is we start to think like this. Man, if... Like the Pharisee who says, you know, thank God I'm not a sinner like this man. We start to become pharisaical in our thinking. We think, man, if everybody was just like me, everything would be better. These, these, these pagans over here, man, they're terrible. These people in the church who, who do this or do that, they're terrible. I'm, I've got it all together. And at the core, we don't really want God any more than they do. It's just self-righteousness. And I was trying to analyze this this week of these little thoughts that I have as a self-righteous Christian. I found myself thinking like things like, how come he gets to drive like that? How come he gets to speed down the highway like that? I'm trying to obey the rules here. How come they get to cut in line at Wegmans? I was here first. There's sort of this works-based mentality of like, I deserve, I deserve. I'm obeying the rules. Why can't everybody else? This is big for me. Like I said, I've, I've moved from conservatism to rebellion to, to legalism now to like a mix of the gospel and self-righteousness. Like, that's where I'm at. Which I think the majority of the church can be at. Here's something to think about. I think the reason we get mad, we get frustrated when we see people cheating the system, when we see people getting away with things, is two things. One, we are losing something. Our pride, our place in line, place in the easy pass line. Like you can tell I got a thing with lines. Like, like 
we're, we're losing something and someone else is gaining by cheating the system. And it drives us crazy because really it's a threat to our throne. It's a threat to our rule. And the second thing is, we get upset because we would do it too. We wish that we could. We really wish we could just skirt the system and get away with stuff too. And we're jealous that they're getting to do it. I think that's one of the reasons we get so upset. I had a friend who was kind of rebellious and eventually came to Jesus, came to faith. And it was really interesting to watch his story because we were all super excited that he came back to the Lord. And what happened was, like my story, he quickly moved into legalism. And I think it was in reaction, kind of a knee-jerk reaction to all of his, his rebellion. And he quickly moved into legalism, and it ruined his life. And it ruined his faith. His faith was, was just dead. He tried to obey the rules so hard. I remember, I remember his friends picking on him because he would pick on them about speeding, and then when he went over the speed limit, they would harass him and be like, well, you good Christian, you better obey the speed limit. So then he would have to obey the speed limit everywhere that he went. And if he wore a shirt that you know, had, like, had a band on it or something, like, oh, well, you're a Jesus follower. You, you can like this band. You can go to this party. You can do this thing. And, and, and rather than living in the freedom of the gospel, he started living in legalism, and he kept trying to beat himself up and beat himself up. And eventually, he's gone from the faith now, like just left completely because there was no life in it. It was just self-righteous legalism like this older brother, and he started judging everybody else, and they in turn judged him, and it ruined his life. It was terribly sad to watch. And I would say that it was, it was sort of blessing-motivated self-righteousness as opposed to grace-motivated obedience. Right? He, was, he was being self-righteous because he was trying to get the blessings of the Father, but didn't really understand grace and wasn't obeying out of grace. He was earning it instead. So in the story, we see that the Father jumps off the porch. He finds the young son, he goes and he talks to the older son and he says, Son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. I would say an expanded version of that is, I, I never asked you to be perfect. I never asked you to, to be some amazing son. Just be with me. Everything I have is yours. I know you're not perfect. I know you're not going to be able to do this. Everything I have is yours. Reminded me of Ephesians 2, where Paul says, It's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that, that we even have the mindset to turn and repent. It's not by works, it's not by anything that we earn, it's not by anything that we do. That's what the Father's proclaiming to this older son. It's what God proclaims to us now through the resurrection. It says, Jesus did it. You're not going to be able to do it, you're not going to be perfect, but He is, and you follow Him. So, do you see the problem here? Both sons, the one who be- behaves really well and the one who rebels, both are under guilt because they don't want the father. They don't really want his authority, whether it's self-discovery or self-righteousness, rebellion or resentment, they don't want the father's control. They don't want his authority. What Keller points out in the book, The Prodigal God, which I think is so amazing, and, and why we kind of went the way we did here with the sermon, is Jesus points out another sin. I think specifically talking to the Pharisees and talking to maybe those of us in the church who are pretty self-righteous. Did you notice that the, the older brother says, 
to the Father, this son of yours, this son of yours, he doesn't identify him as his brother anymore. And and we think that Jesus was really kind of pointing at the Pharisees saying, you should be out looking for the younger brothers. Not being self-righteous and putting them down and condemning them. You should be out looking for them. Out going after them. But that would take so much forgiveness on their part. When they divide up the inheritance, think about it this way, when they divide up the inheritance, the younger brother gets a third. All right, hold it up. The younger brother gets a third. The older brother gets two-thirds. The younger brother spends all of his, nothing left. You have two-thirds left, right? When the younger brother comes back, the father reinstates him into the estate. So now that two-thirds of the older brother that he had left gets divided again. He loses something in this. And his self-righteous, condemning self cannot handle it. He doesn't want to lose anything. He doesn't want to give anything away to this brother. And, and what's so key to this, and I've learned in my own life, and Keller points it out, and we see it in this story, is that forgiveness always costs something. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver from the initial pain that they suffer, from the initial thing that they incur on them, and then in the letting go of it. In this story, the, the letting go of the estate and letting the younger brother come back and be a part of it. So as much as this sermon is about being freed from the guilt of throwing off the father's authority, it's also about forgiveness. It's also about admitting that, yeah, forgiveness costs me something. So how do we do this? Because our natural tendency is to say it serves him right. Right? He deserves that. I'm not going to share with him. Yet Jesus calls us to forgive, to forgive our enemies over and over again. But it always costs us. So how do we do this? I think a couple of things that have helped me process this is that we have to trust God's provision. In this case, the brother's giving up his inheritance. He has to trust that his father is going to be able to still produce for him, to still care for him, to still share the inheritance with him in some way or another. And in our lives, we have to trust when we've lost something, whether it's part of our identity, you know, bodily pain, financial pain, relational pain, whatever it is, we have to trust that God still loves us and will care for us. And the place we look to for that is Jesus who gave up everything for us. We can trust the Father to provide for us, first of all, because look what he did with Jesus. He gave up his son to give us life. So we have to trust God's provision to forgive. And we have to trust God's justice. Because there are times when we have to forgive somebody where justice will not be served. That person's going to get away with it in one way or another. And it's not our job to bring vengeance, God says. They will get away with it. They will still have power. They will still have control. They will still have authority. They will still have riches. They will still have capital. Whatever it is that's been taken from us, it's not our job to then take it from them back. We have to trust that God will bring justice, which he promises that he will. Just dwell on that for a little bit. We have to trust God's provision. We have to trust his justice. So, all right, we have the older brother, 
with the younger brother. What, what Keller points out, like he always does so well, is he calls Jesus the true older brother. You know, Adam talks about this all the time about Jesus. He's true humanity. Jesus is the true and good and worthy older brother. Because what does he do? He seeks out the rebellious younger brother. Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost. He came to earth to seek and save us, the rebellious younger brothers, who consistently throw off God's authority and say, I don't want it. I don't need it. And Jesus comes and he says, I've come to give you life. I've come to find you. Jesus is the true older brother in that sense. And he shares his inheritance with us. I was reading this week in Hebrews too where the the author says, Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The older brother in this story was so ashamed of this younger brother. He said, I don't want anything to do with him. He's dead to me. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and to share his inheritance with us, Paul says. So Jesus gave up everything to come and rescue us, to seek and save us. And then he shares his inheritance with us now in the kingdom, part of new creation, and for all of eternity. He's the good and true older brother. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he brings glory to the Father. He came to serve to, to present God to glory. And he was worthy. This younger and the older brother in this story hated his father at this point. He didn't truly want to glorify his father. He wanted to glorify himself. But Jesus comes to glorify the Father. So because of the cross and the resurrection, we've been set free from guilt. We've been set free from the guilt of rebellion, which we all still struggle with daily. And we've been set free from the guilt of self-righteousness that says, I can do it. I can earn it. I've got it all together. I don't need God. I just want his blessing. So how do we do that? We turn, right? That classic term, repentance, right? We turn around like the younger brother, and say, all right, forgive me. My way was, was not good. Jesus, I trust you. I trust your life. I trust your death. I trust your resurrection to be enough for me. I'm going to trust the Father in this. And we turn and we draw near to the Father. We stop running away for blessing and believe that the blessing is found in being with the Father. And we turn from our self-righteousness and trust the Father's provision and his grace for us. And we're called to forgive. I mean, that is so much part of our walk on a daily basis. We are called to forgive, knowing that it will cost us something. But we gain the Father's full life. We gain the presence of the Father. We gain his access to him through Jesus, and we can be with him. And when we forgive, we become more like him, which is the full life that Jesus promised. So my prayer is that, is that when we leave from here, thinking about this story that some of us know so well, that that we will remember that Jesus is the good older brother who comes to seek us. And he comes to find us in our rebellious places. And God loves us despite our rebellion, despite our self-righteousness. And that we can't earn this. We can't earn out of our guilt. That we've been set free from it because of the resurrection.